With me, we're going to read a passage from the 19th chapter of Revelation that some of you may already be familiar with. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and mighty men, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, small and great. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest of them were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the power and the truth and the promise of your word. I pray that the Holy Spirit would inhabit each person here, that you would quicken us and make us alive to what you want to do in us and to what your plans are for, for us. In Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, just let me say for those of you who uh, uh, are visitors and those of you who maybe haven't been here for a while that I don't normally dress this way to preach. Uh, this is actually a, a jersey that um, Alan Smith and some of the other members of the church gave to me. How many years ago? Twelve years ago. It, it, it says Isaiah 53 on it. And uh, if I had thought ahead, I'd have got one that said Daniel 2, because we're going to go there today, but I got Isaiah 53. That, that, that works for all occasions. And uh, it just so happened that it happened to be, you know, the jersey of the team that's winning the Super Bowl this afternoon. So I just thought, yeah, whoo, okay. <laughs> Tried to get Barbie to wear a Ravens jersey to kind of even it out, but she didn't want to. Uh, Apocalypse is a, a word that tends to get thrown around often. Um, it actually is in the New Testament. Uh, this, it's the Anglis, apocalypse. That's just simply the anglicized, anglicized spelling of the Greek word apocalypse. And it literally means an uncovering, a, re, a revealing, a disclosure of knowledge that was previously uh, hidden from humanity. You know, we have 
sort of reached a place in our in our culture in our society where we kind of believe that uh, if you give science enough time it'll explain everything but the truth of the matter is science can only explain what can be observed and there are some things that cannot be because if it can't be observed it's not science and there are some things that simply can't be observed there are some very important things that can't be observed and the only way that they can be known is through revelation and so another word for uncovering is the word revelation as well uh, which is a book that we'll be going to here in just a few minutes um, because the book of Reve- because of the book of revelation the word apocalypse has also come to mean the final triumph of good over evil Prior to that, it was just simply an uncovering, a revelation. And with the secularization of the word over the last 40 years or so, it's come to mean any reference to the end of the world. So basically, that's what most people think of when you you hear the word apocalypse. Uh, Several books of the Bible mention the coming of the Lord and the the change that's going to happen. But there are two specifically that stand out in their companion books. One of them is a book from the Old Testament. One of them is a book from the New Testament. One of them is pretty obvious. Uh, The other one is the book of Daniel. And I mentioned Daniel last week, and I told you that Daniel, boy, Daniel is such a powerful book because it is so precise and so much that it has to say. The only way that you can read Daniel and walk away with it and go, "There, there is no God. God did not write this book is to say that it was written after the fact, not when it claimed to be written in the, in the 6th century B.C. And I talked about that a little bit last week. I want to take just a couple of minutes to go a little more in-depth with it because I mentioned, I mentioned Daniel chapter 5 and this guy Belshazzar. Uh, how many of you have heard of Belshazzar? Yeah, how many of you can spell it without looking at the screen? <laughs> okay. Uh, Belshazzar according to Daniel, was the king over Babylon on the night that it fell. And for a couple of centuries, uh, some Bible scholars went, well, the guy who wrote Daniel obviously did not know his history because nobody's ever heard of Belshazzar in the first place. And in the second place, uh, all historians worth their salt know that a guy named Nabonidus was the last king of Babylon. And so for 100 years or so, that was pretty common knowledge that you know the guy who wrote Daniel just didn't he wrote it so far after the time that it happened that he didn't know he didn't even know who the last king of Babylon was but then let me get the date right it was in the 1850s in 1854 uh, there was a cylinder a uh, cuneiform cylinder discovered and after it was finally decoded translated it became known as the Cylinder of Nabonidus, and we found out a whole lot more about this guy. One of the things was that shortly after he became king, he decided that instead of being king, he'd rather be a monk. So he essentially went off into the, into the desert to an oasis where he could devote himself to worshiping the, the moon god, who had the interesting name of Sin, by the way. And when he did that, in, uh, in uh, 553 B.C., he appointed a guy named Belshazzar, who was his son, as co-regent over Babylon. In 540, Nabonidus came back to oppose Cyrus the Great, and on October the 10th, 
539 B.C., 2,515 years to the day before Margaret and I got married. <laughs> he was defeated by Cyrus the Great, surrendered and fled. And two days later, October the 12th, 539 B.C., 2,515 years after Margaret and I were on our honeymoon in Townsend, Tennessee, Babylon fell. And the, the king of Babylon, who did not know that Nabonidus had yet fell, was a guy named Belshazzar. And so not only was the writer correct on that, but he also saw, it also solved the mystery of why Belshazzar, when he was trying to get someone to translate the writing on the wall for him, why he said, whoever does it, I'll make him the third highest in the kingdom. He didn't have the right to make him the second highest in the kingdom because he was already the second highest in the kingdom. Third was all he could do. And, and one other thing that was put down and criticized often about it was that Nebuchadnezzar kept being mentioned as Belshazzar's father. In fact, it's mentioned so many times in that chapter, chapter 5, it, it almost becomes a joke. It's kind of like uh, they just say Nebuchadnezzar as many times as they can possibly say it. But another thing that was discovered was that Nabonidus was actually a usurper Nebuchadnezzar wasn't really his father, so being the politician that he was, and all of the information that he put out, there, was, there were copious mentions of Nebuchadnezzar as being his father. So Belshazzar, of course, would have done exactly the same thing. I, I, I mention all this, just, just the Bible is so amazing. It's just so incredible. And anytime somebody comes against it and goes, well, you know, it, it, it's obviously wrong here, just wait. Just wait, and you find out that it's obviously right. I want to look at, at, uh, at chapter 2 of Daniel very quickly. Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon, that uh, actually he was Nebuchadnezzar II, who was uh, the height of its powers as an empire, had a dream in Daniel chapter 2, and, and the dream troubled him so much uh, that when he called his wise men together, those who could interpret dreams, to ask them what it meant, he wouldn't tell them what the dream was. He said, if I tell you what the dream is, you're just going to make something up, and I won't know that you're telling me the truth. So for me to know that you really know what this dream means, you've got to tell me what the dream is, and then tell me what it means. Well, this was a problem for them. Because they didn't know what the dream was. And there was no way they could find out. And they tried to explain to the king what an unreasonable request this was. And he replied by saying, well, it may be an unreasonable request, but if you don't do it, I will kill you. <laughs> and so, in fact, he began to carry out that particular plan. But when they came to Daniel and his friends, Daniel asked, give, give, us, give us just a little time. Give us one night. So Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, prayed, and God revealed the dream to Daniel and, re and revealed its meaning to him. And when Daniel came in to the king, he told him what the dream was, and he told him what it meant. He said, in your dream, you saw this, you saw this statue, and it was a very fearsome-looking statue, but it was also very odd because the head was made of gold, and the chest and the arms were made of silver, and the, the, the belly and the thighs were made of brass, and the legs were iron, but the feet were iron mixed with clay, which is not a mixture that actually works. And he said, and then there was a, a, a stone that was hewn out, but not by human hands, and it struck the statue, and, and the statue was totally destroyed, and the stone grew into a mountain and filled the entire earth. That was your dream. 
Here's what it means. So the Lord has told you about what's going to happen. He's told you the, the, the sequence of human history, basically, here from this time forward. So that golden head, that's you. That's, that's your kingdom. That's Babylon. There are going to be three great empires that will follow you. The second one, the, the brass one, that's the, the Medes and the Persians. That was Cyrus the Great. They were the ones who, who conquered Babylon. After that will become Greece. That's the brass part with the, the belly and the, and, and, and the thighs. And over in, uh, over in chapters 7 and 8, Daniel goes into great detail about both of those. And you don't have to be a super historian to read that, especially chapter 8, and go, wow, wow. If this was written when it says it was, let me say it backwards, wow. <laughs> and then finally there will be an empire, and this one was Rome, that would be represented by these iron legs, which was a good representation for Rome because Rome... Very powerful, very strong, and also ended up breaking into two different uh, sections, the Eastern Kingdom and the Western Kingdom, Rome and Constantinople. And it can also be argued that Rome, the Roman Empire, didn't actually, it was never really destroyed, it just sort of disintegrated. It kind of ended up like, like these feet in a mixture and conglomeration of peoples who just simply would no longer fit together. It should also... Uh, can be argued that the Roman Empire uh, was the last true empire on the face of the earth and that it really in a lot of ways is still with us today in the West. Often overlooked though is the conclusion of the dream. This, this, this stone that came and destroyed all of these and grew into a great mountain. And Daniel says this, while you were watching a rock was cut out not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were broken to pieces at the same time and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. In other words, these empires, these worldly empires, were destroyed never to be remembered again. They didn't have a trace left behind, but this, this stone that had come down it grew into a mountain and filled the whole earth. Now Daniel interprets the dream. He tells him what this means. And I want to look specifically at what he had to say about this, this last part, the stone. In the time of those kings, those empires, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end. But it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of the mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. In the time of those kings, this new thing will happen. And it was that in the time of Rome, Jesus came. And a kingdom was established. A kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. A kingdom that has only had one king and will never have another king. A kingdom that has really nothing to do with human invention or human creation. A kingdom that was totally created by God. And not only that, you can't even get into it by human effort. The only way you can get into it is the way that God prepares and the way that God makes for it. Something that has continued to grow from its humble beginnings in a stable or a cave in Bethlehem 
where there was a, a young baby. I guess all babies are young. That's, is that redundant? Uh, ponder it. Young baby is where the kingdom started out, but now it covers the entire earth. People from every language, tribe, nation, and tongue under heaven belong to it. Over 2 billion people subscribe to it. Not by human hands. See, God said over in Isaiah chapter 59, not 53, but 59, it says this, the Lord looked and was displeased. There was no justice. He saw there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his, his own arm worked salvation for him. His own righteousness sustained him. He put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. Have you heard that term, helmet of salvation, anywhere else in Scripture? That's where it comes from. It's something that God created and began. So Daniel gives us a, a snapshot, if you will, an overview of the apocalypse and what it means. Revelation gives us more information there's much to debate concerning the images and the events described in revelation um i mean i've i've read a number of books that claim to have it figured out and all of them do and none of them do uh if if that makes any sense to you but uh it is certain one thing is absolutely certain what is being described in the book of revelation is the overthrow of the current world system and the ascension of Christ to his rightful place to rule and reign on the earth. That, that's what the book is describing. That's what takes place there. And I want to look specifically, beginning with chapter 17 of Revelation, uh, not that all the other chapters aren't important, they're extremely important. I just don't understand much about uh, a lot of the other chapters. But in chapter 17, it very clearly begins to ramp up and begins with the overthrow of the world system and then takes us all the way into the New Jerusalem. So I, I want to start there. And chapter 17 reveals a woman. And this woman is riding on a beast. And the woman has a title that is written on her forehead. Mystery Babylon the Great. The mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. And there, there's been a lot of speculation about who's Mystery Babylon. Ooh. I, I mean, seriously. You know, if you're, if you're a conspiracy theorist or you're, you know, kind of into that sort of stuff, then... I mean, what a what a thing to get into, yeah. And when I was a kid growing up, um, and let me just say that I absolutely don't believe this right now because I need to say it. But when I was a kid growing up, I was taught Mystery Babylon. That's 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 Roman Catholic Church. That's who it is. I mean, dressed in scarlet and purple. Look at those robes, you know, and all that kind of stuff. It's got to be. That's what it is. And. Uh, and there are people today, uh, you know, you can go on some uh, um, websites and stuff, I encourage you not to, but you can, that, uh, you know, will we'll, uh, say, well, it's America, it's, it's United States of America, or it's, it's not America, it's Russia, or it's communism, or it's capitalism, or it's socialism, or it's anarchism, or it's... None of those things are big enough. I do know this one. I know what it is. It's the entire world system. It's the way the world operates. It's the way that it rolls and it stinks. Really stinks. You know, we're, we're insulated pretty much here because everybody's got it pretty well. 
You know, we've got, we got food and we got televisions and we got places to put them. But most of the world isn't that way. And the way the world system works is this. The strong oppress the poor. The rich exploit the weak. That's it. It's full of heartbreak, misery, pain, shame. Money makes the world go round. That's the world system. When John says over in 1 John chapter 2, do not love the world or anything in the world, he's not saying, you know, don't love the mountains and the seas, dadgummit. You know? No. He's saying don't love the system. Don't love the way that it functions, the way that it operates. And that's what this is. It's who Mystery Babylon is. This woman rides a beast with seven heads and ten horns. And by the way, that beast also is in Daniel 7. But whether the woman represents a city or a religious system or a political system or the world system, I mean, you can argue, but there can be no doubt that, that, that she and the beast are going to be destroyed. And that destruction is told about in chapter 18, which reveals the words of mourning expressed over the fall of Babylon. And Babylon must be taken symbolic because Babylon wasn't really a power in the days when John wrote this. But listen to this. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a home for demons and a haunt for every evil spirit, a haunt for every evil and unclean and detestable bird. Kind of sounds like we might already be there. For all of the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. And then it goes on to talk about what different groups say, the, the political leaders. When the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared her luxury see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn over her. And then it talks about what the merchants have to say. The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Why would anyone need to buy their cargoes? When a system has been ushered in that is based on everyone who is thirsty, come. Everyone who is hungry, come. Buy freely, without, without money, without price. Come and drink. Come and dine. <laughs> who needs their cargoes? And, and, and the sea captains... They say they will throw dust on their heads and will weep with mourning, crying out, Woe, woe, O great city, where all who had ships on the sea became rich through her wealth. In one hour, she has been brought to ruin. What will it mean when this happens? I mean, think about what it will mean. Verses 21 through 24. Well, think about it in terms of the world as you know it right now and this is what this is about with such violence the great city of babylon will be thrown down never to be found again the music of harpists and musicians flute players and trumpeters will never be heard in you again no workman of any trade will ever be found in you again the voice of bridegroom and bride will never be heard in you again your merchants were the world's great men. By your magic spell, all the nations were led astray. In her was found the blood of the prophets and of the saints and of all who have been killed 
on the earth. Probably all of you have at some point in time heard somebody say, and maybe you've even said it yourself, if God is so powerful and God is so loving, why doesn't he fill in the blank? Why doesn't he stop this? Why doesn't he make that happen? Why did he let that happen? You know, we, it's understandable because we're humans and from our frame of reference, it's understandable that sometimes we would think that way. Sometimes we'd go, God, why? You know, why? But what we don't do is we don't stop to consider what it will mean when in fact he does stop this. Do that completely take over you see when jesus comes he's not coming to share power he's not gonna he's not gonna say well you got you got elected so you know let's let's make a deal you know he's not gonna call all the billionaires together and say uh, you know y'all have the money uh but look let, let's strike some kind of deal here because i you know i got some stuff too you know when you bring it no it says over in, in psalm chapter two he will rule the nations with a rod of iron it will not be a, I'm sorry guys, we're not headed for a democracy. <laughs> we just simply aren't. We're, we're headed for a kingdom. And most of us have never, have never even lived under a king before. We don't know what that's all about. When he comes, he's not coming to share power. And it's not going to be a smooth transition. It's going to be a quick one. But it's not going to be smooth. He, you know, he's not going to set up a, uh, he's not going to set up a committee to sit down and work with the current leaders to decide how can we transition this in such a way that the people won't freak out. The people are going to freak out when it happens. Completely. For those who are totally invested in the world system, it will be a terror. And many and most are totally invested in the world system. Revelation chapter 6 says this, then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in the caves and among the rocks and the mountains, and they called out to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? I mean, when you read that passage that we read at the beginning about he, he wears a robe dipped in blood, he treads the winepress of the fury of God's wrath. I, come on. No wonder. No wonder. Those who are invested, if, if, if your hope and your desire and what you got is here, then that's what his coming looks like. That's what his coming looks like. For those whose hope and desire is there, is in his coming, it's, it's, it's a totally different thing. Second Thessalonians says, on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all of those who have believed. Oh, listen, we've been waiting such a long, 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 long time. When it actually takes place, whew, have you ever even tried to think about it? Back in, uh, it must have been 75, it might have been 76. I know Margaret and I weren't married yet, and, uh, but I know I'd come back to the Lord. 
And I was, I was thinking, I was just, I was thinking about the return of the Lord. It was the middle of the day. I don't remember any, much else about it. I just know it was the middle of the day, and I was, I was laying down. I don't know why I was laying down, but because uh, I was young then, I didn't need a, an afternoon nap in those days. But uh, I was laying down, and I don't know if it was. I don't think I wouldn't call it a vision. I, I wouldn't call it a dream. It was a, a vision, I guess. You know, or a dream, uh, and uh, but I was thinking about the coming of the Lord, and and I was looking up, and it was clear sky, just beautiful, gorgeous, bright, sunshiny day, not a cloud anywhere in the sky. And then all of a sudden, it just tore open, and it was like what I had been looking at was a was a black page with a with a bright light behind it. I mean, this, there was just this incredible light that flowed through it, and, and then I woke up, or, or whatever. But, I mean, it's coming. Marveled at. What a sight to see. You know, the rapture, that's, that's great, and I want to go in the rapture, but I want to see this, too. You know, I want, I'd like to, like to see it from, from both perspectives. I'm kind of torn about this, what I want it to be. For those who have one foot in each world, <laughs> your guess is as good as mine. <laughs> the problem is, I think that probably describes just about all of us. The, the only ones of us that it probably doesn't describe are, are those who are totally invested in this world. That's where many of us are. That's where many of us live. And so, you know, I mean, I think with his coming, it's going to be rejoicing. It's going to be great. It's going to be wonderful. But it's going to be terrifying, too. Revelation chapter 19, uh, we read from there about his coming. Uh, chapter 17 presents a, an encapsulated version of what happens. Uh, they will make war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. This is describing what we read earlier. is describing what you've probably heard of as the, the Battle of Armageddon. But before that takes place, there's a scene that takes place in heaven that, uh, that we need to look at for just a minute. I mean, they, before that happens, they get happy in heaven. They get very happy. Revelation chapter 19, the first eight verses, says this. Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne and they cried, Amen, Hallelujah, or as my dad would say, Amen, Hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both small and great. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah. For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. 
Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. You see, for, for heaven, it's a wedding day. I mean, and there has never been a wedding that has been as prepped as this one has been. There's never been a wedding that's had as beautiful and powerful and strong a groom as this one's got. There's never been a wedding, even mine, that has had such a beautiful bride. I don't know about that. But seriously, you know, I, which, who was it uh, was telling me about the weddings in Africa where they, where they, have, where they don't bring... Huh? Clopas. Yeah. Was, uh, uh, was it he the one to, uh, he went to a place where they did this. Yeah. Okay. What we're going to tell you about is what they do in Africa. It's like they, uh, <clears throat> at least in the Christian churches. Yeah. You know, in, in our churches, the, the, the pastor and the, and the groom and all will walk out and, you know, and, Kind of sit there and wait for the bride to come. Right? Right? Yeah? yeah. Okay. There, the bride and, and all the bridesmaids come out and stand there and kind of wait for the groom to be revealed, for the groom to come in. And then when he comes in, you know, he, he doesn't come in like, no, no, he comes in. He's bringing it. Yo, oh, yeah, here I am. I'm here. Yes, sir. Because they wanted to reflect that. They wanted to reflect that day. So people will think about that. Revelation. Uh, first service didn't get any of that. Revelation chapter 21. You guys know about this, but I mean, think about this. This is what apocalypse is. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. We can't... We, mankind, mankind started out in a garden with no sin, no death, no pain. And they saw God face to face every day. Our destiny is a city with no crying, no death, no sin, no fear, no pain. And we see God face to face every day. Who knew that? Who could figure that? What kind of formula could you write out to figure that out? What can you look at under a microscope or through a telescope to figure that out? That has to be revealed. That's what, that is literally what the apocalypse is. And then in chapter 22, it describes it. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the trees of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. 
The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and its servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. And I think I got one more here. There will be no night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. The angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. You know what? I could get used to that. I mean, when, when it happens, yeah, we're going to freak out. I could get used to that. And, and there's a lot about this that I can't explain. I mean, I don't know. I don't know how the eternal blends with the nations needing healing. I, I don't know that. I don't know how the thousand-year reign fits into all of this. I, I don't know. But I know this. Inside of me and inside of every single one of you, there is something. We don't hear it all the time, but there's something that we hear often that goes, this ain't right. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. I, I, I really wasn't made for this. Something else I was made for. And that's because this isn't right. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. This isn't what you were created for. That's what you were created for. This world is not my home. Don't wait anymore. Come quickly. Would you stand with me? Oh, my goodness. I was just thinking, you know, there's probably some people here who don't know the Lord. And I remember when I was in your shoes and I would hear a sermon like this, I would think, you trying to scare me? <laughs> and now I'm kind of looking at it and go, scare you? You scared of that? You don't have to be. You don't have to be. The reason you're here. The reason why you, why you feel anything, why you feel alive, is because he brought you here, because he wants you, because the Holy Spirit has pursued you. You didn't just get up this morning and go, I'm going to church. Uh-uh. No, you had a divine appointment. Are those who are going to pray with people, uh, come down. If you, and if you need to know Christ, if you don't know him and you want to know him as your Savior, we'd love to introduce you to him. There's just no, no finer, no finer person that you could meet. <laughs> Nobody who could do more for you. Because you can't get into the kingdom by your own effort. This is something that's created only by God. And the way in was created only by God. And Jesus is that way. If you're here and you do already know him, you're also living in a fallen stinking world it may be beautiful the parts god created is beautiful but the system stinks and you may need prayer about something you may need healing you may need provision there may be something you need prayer for come we'd like to pray with you scripture says wherever any two of you touch is agreeing on anything it'll be done for you so come touch agree and pray with somebody if you don't need to come worship Let's worship.
Let's worship. Life is not mine. My- 